and uh, we are live. Scott, cheers for coming on today. How's, Thanks for uh, having me today. How's everything been keeping uh, on your end? It's good, it's good. Nice, uh, it's a nice day over here in New Orleans. So um, for obviously people that don't know uh, who you are, some of my, my followers might not know who you are or have heard of you, um, tell us about your background and what you're an advocate for and uh, how you got into sort of where you are. Sure. So um, I am a, a writer and basic income advocate. And um, so I, I write about uh, a lot about the idea of an unconditional basic income, which is essentially a, um, an investment in people that is individual, it's unconditional, it's universal, and it's in the form of, of cash that people can spend on anything they, they want instead of you know, a, a paternalistic kind of welfare system that decides what people need as if they know better than people. Hmm. Um, I came into this through an automation perspective uh, back in 2013. And this was before the report came out that I'm sure many people have heard of by now, that in the next two decades, um, about half of the jobs in the U.S. will be automated. And uh, so it wasn't really part of the discussion yet at the time, and it's it's become more of the discussion since then. But at the time, really, no one was was talking about the the potential for heavy automation in the near future. So this was a it was through actually Reddit. There was a discussion at the front page just about how quickly technology was advancing and how little people knew and understood what that meant. And so that got me looking into this and, you know, thinking about the future and thinking about, you know, where we're going, what our options are. And, and that led me to this idea of a, of a basic income. And I, at the time, I had no idea it had such a, it's, it's a, a rich history. I didn't know that we almost passed a version under it, of it under Nixon in the 70s. I didn't know that, that the U.S. kind of led the way as far as uh, experimenting with it in cities uh, across the country. And it even passed the House proposed by Nixon and, and didn't make it through the Senate. So we were really close in passing a version of it decades ago. And I didn't even know that. I just thought that was a fascinating piece of history. And so more, you know, that's that's more widely known now, now that this discussion is taking place again. But it's fascinating how we didn't even really, that like I didn't learn that in school and stuff. And so, you know, I. I looked into the experiments around the world, that we've actually done experiments other places, uh, that there was a full UBI experiment in, in Namibia and a full UBI experiment in India, and that we are, there's a lot that we know th through unconditional cash transfer uh, programs all across the, the world. So there's just a, there's a lot, lot of rich evidence out there that I wasn't familiar with, that I became familiar with. And so uh, yeah, eventually when I, when I learned enough about this and uh, as a moderator of the basic comes subreddit um, you know, I also submit and find a lot of stuff and submit it and uh, you know part of the discussion there so I started writing about it and um, you know it's just uh, hopefully I've done my part in, in helping expand this discussion and people learning about this and and uh, really kind of educating themselves and studying this topic in depth instead of just say reading you know one thing and along the way too I actually crowdfunded my own basic income back in uh, 
2015. So since January of 2016, I've actually been starting every month with $1,000 um, via Patreon, and that's my floor. So, you know, I'm, I'm capable and I'm able to earn anything on top of that, but that's my floor, or that's my minimum earnings per amount. So I know that, you know, I got my food and my rent covered, that's covered. And, and so through that, I've learned a lot about this as well. It's just that, you know, a lot of this is about security. It's like this emotional sense of security that, that once you got your basics covered, you can really focus on the things that, that matter to you. Yeah, I mean, it's um, it's obviously an interesting concept and one that I sort of is like, it's kind of the reason why I'm doing podcasting is I guess to try and build my own sort of basic income to an extent um, through Patreon. I'm on there myself. I get $4 a month, which uh, doesn't really help for much, but it's, you know, it's something and it's better than nothing. So, and I appreciate the people that are supporting me. Um, but yeah, I think it gives you that. Like obviously, if I was earning a thousand a month or more, or five hundred pounds a month or two hundred fifty quid a month, I think it's just extra cash and it's an extra bill that you don't have to go to work for or or doesn't come out of your bank and you think, ah, oh, Jesus Christ, like pressure, pressure, pressure. It kind of uh, alleviates that stress, uh, which I, I assume is quite yeah. good for the mental mental side of things. Yeah, I think a really good way to look at this is Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which is uh, for anyone unfamiliar with. It. It's just that, you know, imagine like a pyramid where at the bottom are the absolute basics. So like you need food in order to live. You need shelter in order to live. You've got you got to cover these absolute most basics. But then once those needs are met, you don't just stop there and do, you know, nothing else. You have higher needs. So, you know, you have needs to, to form community, to have social relationships, to uh, improve yourself as a person, to, to learn like there's a lot of other needs above that. So once you cover those basic needs, that's what you do. And just having your basic needs met, it's just amazing how different that is. Yeah, you're talking about less stress and just more ability to to just focus on whatever it is 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 most important to you, which is not sitting around doing nothing. Nobody mm. wants to do that. No, this I mean, I think that's um with like the basic income thing, a lot of people kind of assume that it's like a free ride thing like people are just going to get basic income or a universal basic income and they're just going to be content with oh well I'll just sit on the sofa now I've got got this money and I don't think it's everyone's aspirations I know there are like a small minority of people out there that probably would be quite content that way but I think as like humans we're driven to want more yeah and also it, this is based on a misunderstanding too of, of how like the existing system works so you know the existing safety nets all over the world are, are targeted so what they mean is is that you you only give assistance to somebody if say they're earning below a certain amount and so what when you do that that means that they once they earn enough then they no longer qualify for that assistance and then it's taken away from them so the result of that is that it's it it functions as like a higher tax it's like an increased marginal tax rate. Uh, because let's say, you know, if you're earning uh, $10,000 in benefits and someone offers you uh, a $10,000 job, what we think is that that person should be have a new total of $20,000, right? Or at least it should be, say, $15,000 or something. But instead, they lose, like, the whole thing or even, say, more than the amount because... 
the benefits were higher. So you can go from, say, $10,000 in benefits to um, you know $10,000 with your job, in which case, what's the point? Because yeah. <laughs> now you're working a job maybe you don't even like, and of course it's, it's, it's hard. It's hard work. It's taking up a lot of time, and you're no better off. So why would you do that? It makes more sense not to accept employment under those conditions. And so that's the way the current system is built. So the basic income just looks at this and says, well, that doesn't make any sense. Like work should reward you with additional income. And so that's exactly what happens. Because it's never taken away, you always benefit by earning additional income. So how would it work within society? Because obviously uh, a lot of people kind of look at it as like it's a, a communist thing. How could like say that there's always going to be people that are going to uh, also be like begrudge it like oh these people like I'm working and they get a free ride and whatever and I think it's that negative aspect like they're not getting a free ride because you're also getting the money as well but I don't understand how it would like implement and work with like society and the economy. Yeah, so it, a couple things about that is it's it, the the universal aspect of it means that there's that there's no stigma there's no us and and them because everyone's getting it so if you look at like the closest thing in the world to this operating in existence already is the alaska dividend which has existed since 1982 in alaska which is obviously not a communist state and so everyone there earns around um around a thousand dollars uh on average per year since 1982 this is a just a straight up dividend everyone receives it rich or poor so it's hard to look at something like that, and no one there looks at something like that as being like this handout or helping some people instead of other people. And it's certainly not seen as communist or socialist also because everyone's getting it, and it's cash. So you get cash, and you spend that in markets. You know, that's, that's capitalism. You are, you know, cash is how these markets work. This is not uh, supplying, say, free shirts and and free boxes of food and you know free services that government provides you know that's something that's more of like a, a socialistic model straight up cash is capitalistic model which is why you know your well-known uh, free market economists like Milton Friedman and Friedrich Hayek both supported this idea of, of a non-conditional basic income for that reason that they you know Milton Friedman knew that that this would be be good for markets. It's good for capitalism, and that um, you're able to to go about the what the state does in a way that decreases the size of the state and increases freedom. You're you're reducing the ability of government to tell you what to do, and you're able to have that agency yourself, that freedom to make your own choices using the cash that you have. So was the um, like tech, you know, like the technology uh, aspect that you said, where uh, I mean, we're seeing it like in Tesco's in the UK, we have like a lot of self-service scans and stuff like that, which, of course, has no doubt led to people not being employed in less jobs that Tesco's need to create because obviously they've got self-service scanners and stuff like that. Is that kind of your was that your major spark where you was like, you know, it'd be a great idea for people to have this basic income as their safety as their floor as their safety net even if they lose their jobs they're still okay they're not like oh shit my mortgage is gone or or whatever do you know what i mean yeah yeah it's so it, it's not it, it's not all, 
only that that things won't get bad with a basic income in light of automation. It's that things can get so much better than they are now. So and it's important to, to differentiate those two, I feel, uh, because a lot of people, like when they're coming across basic income through a technological argument, they think of it as like, um, you know, this kind of in case of emergency the break glass kind of idea <laughs> like uh like it's just things are gonna get really bad but they won't get as bad as long as we have this and the, th the thing that really got me into this idea and why i'm such an advocate is i realized that it that it's not that it actually is a tool of making things just far better than they are now because uh, you know, the you know the results of poverty around us are, are very expensive um in a lot of ways, you know, you see worse health outcomes, which costs a lot through the healthcare system. You're looking at higher crime rates, which wouldn't be there, which is expensive and also hurts people and prevents them, you know, from reaching their potentials through, you know, imprisonment. And uh, uh, that we're in these jobs that we don't necessarily want to be in. That this is like an involuntary labor market. That there's a coercion aspect of this because people don't have the freedom to say no to the labor market they they have to accept whatever wages are, are offered to them through employers which is very exploitative if you provide people the freedom to refuse to sell their labor then they have bargaining power and that means that they have eat more equal footing with employers and they can say well i'm not going to do that work under these conditions i'll, I'll do it for twenty dollars an hour instead of ten dollars an hour or or I'll do it for uh, 15 hours a week instead of 40 hours a week. You know that there's a lot more, more power and leverage involved for people once work becomes fully voluntary. And so there's just a lot of aspects to this that kind of all add up. That uh, um, just the evidence points to things just being a, a lot better. That you know people well, will be more engaged with their work. That uh, you know intrinsic motivation over extrinsic motivation. There's a lot of factors involved. How could this like? Because um, how how would this like be sort of implemented into say poorer countries? Because obviously they, I mean, obviously this is more on a, from a technological standpoint. Like with with uh, if they had like the technology that say the UK and America have, um, but how would it be work in like poorer countries? Yes, yeah, so there's a really interesting paper that I would recommend, and maybe you could even link to it. But um, in this video, uh, it was a paper by Gary Flomenhoft uh, called um, – it was looking at the ability to apply the Alaska model uh, to a resource-poor state. And I think that provides a really interesting blueprint to how you could do this in poorer countries because poorer countries may be uh, poor and underdeveloped as far as like businesses and uh, it can – consumer economy and things go, but they can also be very rich in natural resources. What they're doing is essentially letting companies come in and just take those resources for free. And it's usually because they politicians are, you know, being bought off and just, um, you know, doing what the companies want. But say a poorer country could say, you know, we understand that uh, the lithium buried in the, the dirt here is is extremely valuable to you. So if you want this natural resource, then you need to pay us for it. And what we're going to do is actually 
actually put at least a large portion of that revenue into a sovereign wealth fund like Alaska has, like Norway has. And then that sovereign wealth fund can be built up and pay dividends to everyone there. So you don't need to have like a, a heavy tax base to be able to handle this. You can't just follow Alaska's model. And instead of the way Alaska does it, which is only oil, there's a lot of other resources that you could look at, including even you know land value itself. And you know just, just look at things that we commonly own that um, not only is a natural resource, but let's say you know the the airwaves itself. You know this is companies should pay money to actually transmit through the airwaves that um, you know a carbon tax would actually make it uh, put a, apply a cost to polluting the air which is something that we all own so there's just a lot of ways we can go about this kind of dividend model in other places and also in countries like say India so that's uh, considered a, a, a more poor country um, the way they currently do things right now is through heavy subsidies so the government pays for a bunch of of subsidies to make things cheaper. So let's say you want to make grains cheaper and various foods cheaper and oil cheaper and things like that, because then the, those who are poor can afford those things. But another way of going about that is to just to eliminate those subsidies and actually provide that as cash to individuals to be able to afford higher costs. There's your your basic income for you know countries like that, which India is actually. Um, probably in the next two years, it's expected that they'll either that they'll start up some kind of large um, UBI pilot, or say do like a small uh, uh, introduction, like in a, one of their states over there. It's um, it's mad because like it is slowly, like certain countries obviously are definitely looking into it, and uh, or at least something that's similar. I don't understand like how it would work for say someone with. I don't know, three kids and someone with one, they would, like, they get this basic income, and that it differs slightly from the current welfare state. Like, obviously, the welfare state takes into consideration someone's got three, five, whatever, however many kids, and you get that money. How would this sort of work with that certain situation? Yeah, so that that's interesting. Um, one of the one of the design aspects of it that I support is the fact of a, a child allowance component or a child-based income. So adults get the full basic income amount, and then those under 18 would get this partial amount. Because that's, a, like in the U.S., the way that we classify poverty by household is, say, one person, it's around $12,000. Uh, Two-person two household is 16000 Three-person is 20000 So in the U.S., the way I would design it is that as an individual adult, you get $12,000 per year. And then for every kid, it's $4,000 per year. So that was that's how you scale it per the household. And that's how a lot of these experiments have been run. And you know that's how a lot of these things are, are being discussed as a detail that isn't, say, widely thought of. But any, any I think, well-designed UBI should include that child component. And if it's... And because actually a lot of countries already have a child allowance, then say in those countries they don't have to actually implement that because they already have it. They already are providing a, um, a essentially a child-based income, uh, like Canada already does that. So when they are looking at a basic income, they don't have to worry about the child element, just like they don't have to worry about the senior element as well. It's just like 18 to 64. 
Um, but it's, so another people hear about this and they think, oh my gosh, won't uh, fertility rates just like go up? Because then you're having you're paying people to have kids, and so okay, so let's look at that. And it's, it, the the existing system, especially like in the U.S., we only essentially care about someone if they have kids. So if you're an able-bodied single adult with no kids, then you essentially get no assistance whatsoever. It's when you it's when you have a kid that you suddenly get assistance, and that can be a good, good amount of assistance um, through all the various programs that we have. So a way of looking at it is that right now you get zero dollars, and then if you have a kid, you get twenty thousand dollars. So that's a large incentive to have a kid if you're looking at it that way. With a basic income, you would have $12,000, or I'm sorry, the other one was for two kids. So the, with the with a basic income, you would start off with $12,000, and then you'd get $4,000 for a kid, and another $4,000 for another kid. So it, the incentives are smaller than the existing system, which goes from zero to 20000 for two kids, or from zero to 16000 for one kid. So there's a, there's a a big incentive difference there. But that's also more of just uh, the way people think about these things, the way that it sounds, the way, how things would work. But that's not how actually things work. Uh, um, you know, the evidence says that this does not actually increase fertility rate. It's giving an unconditional cash transfer like that. And it's because these programs exist all over the world, there's a lot of evidence for this. It's not just, you know, an unexperimented un, 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 with undone idea. We know that this does not actually increase fertility rates. And we actually have seen decreases too. And we also know in general that when you lift people out of poverty and when you like decrease inequality, the fertility rates go down. So it's just a lot of like poorer countries, you have a lot of kids for the same reason we did the same thing in the US. You know, we needed help on the farm. You needed, you, know, you have to have that extra help. As soon as you have enough money, there's no reason to do that. Kids are expensive. You know, you just not want to like, you know, in the average, in the U.S., your average expenditure for having a kid is around a quarter million dollars, or like around two hundred thousand uh, dollars, and that's that's a big investment, you know. And it's a a four thousand uh, dollar per year amount does not equal that. You know, it's it's it just doesn't cover all that. It's it's expensive to have kids. Yeah, I mean, um, it's, it's strange because uh, people look at like this idea from kind of an in-the-box type of way when I think like the way you're talking to me now and like giving these ideas of like $4,000 per kid, it's like just thinking outside of the box, like that's a fucking good idea. And then when they become an adult, obviously, so for, for instance, myself, I'm 26 years old, I still live at home with my mum. Obviously, if I had this basic income, my now I'm an adult, I'd be on a higher wage, which means obviously I could provide more in the home or I could save for myself some money and then move out and get my own property without having to do a shitty job that you know you don't enjoy to right. save and so on. So I think it's a great, like, when you word it, like when you uh, put it that way and when you start thinking outside of the box, I think you start to realise it's not a bad idea at all. Um, the only sort of mindset where I keep because I was sp I was speaking to my girlfriend beforehand about it. She was like, "Where does the money come from?" Oh, sure, 
That's a very I'm common like, question. And I'm like, um, she's like, the, our government here hasn't got money to even put into our NHS, but yet they can bomb Syria or whatever, which costs us 200 and something odd million. It's like, I'm, I tried saying to her, well, that money could have been spent on our 75 million or 80 million in the population. <laughs> we could have all had yeah, a million yeah, pounds so- each, you know? Yeah. So the, yeah, the money certainly exists. You know, it's not it's not true. It's not accurate to say that the money doesn't exist. It is politically difficult, you know, to to get at money depending on what you're looking to do with it. So um, one of the really interesting things about basic income is, is that it's not left or right. It has support from both conservatives and liberals. You know, throughout history, Milton Friedman supported it. Martin Luther King Jr. supported it. You know, to this day, you've got. Uh, um, major business executives supporting it you've got unions supporting it like how many ideas is that true for like hardly hardly anything <laughs> it's rare so that's one aspect of this that says that you know we can have the their the ability to politically do this to get out that money so where is the actual money coming from well so again you're looking at the existing system and it's important to convert the existing system over to a basic income. You know, we already have a lot of welfare programs that wouldn't make sense to have alongside a basic income. You know, so you would incorporate that into it. Uh, but also, there's there's welfare programs that we don't see as welfare that's targeted towards the middle and even upper classes, and those actually are provided through tax systems. So those are tax credits, tax allowances, and deductions and subsidies. Um, you know, it's why are we giving thirty thousand dollars to a billionaire uh, to help them afford a bigger mansion like that doesn't make any sense as far as you know this welfare system goes um, so it would make sense to eliminate those uh, allowances and expenditures and loopholes as well as part of this as to replace that with a basic income so instead of a billionaire getting a thirty thousand dollar tax credit they would get a twelve thousand dollar basic income which would effectively reduce you know from their taxes but in a, a de- decreased way mm. so it's a important to reform the system and when it comes to additional taxes or additional revenue sources there's just a lot of options and i think that's an important discussion to have and the the answers to that uh, will vary from country to country uh, depending on what suits them best in the u.s uh, i really like the idea of a um, of a land value tax uh, because then you're not taxing income, you're taxing the actual unimproved value of land. This is uh, Henry George's idea that also even Milton Friedman, too, thought that was the, the best possible tax that you could do. Because usually when you tax something, you, you decrease it. You know, you, you get less of it. Um, but you can't get less land. It's, it's always there. And what you do by taxing it is actually incentivize its development. And because that's the that's also the difference between a land value tax and a property tax. You're, with a land value tax, you're taxing the land itself, not what's built on it. So you're encouraged to build on it to maximize the earnings potential that you can get because you're being charged a rent on it. So imagine, say, like a a skyscraper next to a vacant lot. Um, they would both pay the same tax. So the 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 person owning the vacant lot, it would make sense to either develop it into a skyscraper or to sell it to someone who would take, who would make use of that land in a way that they could pay the rent on it. And instead of that rent going towards uh, government to decide what to do with it, you would 
use that to provide this basic income to everybody. And that only makes sense because they're actually the ones creating the value of the land. You know, imagine like a, a piece of, of empty land in the desert and you own that. It's worth nothing. And you sit on it. And then suddenly a, a city is built around it. So you've got all these people coming in and they build all this infrastructure and people live in there and they build up these houses. Suddenly that that worthless piece of land becomes, you know, say you could sell it for millions of dollars. Well, what did you do to do that? It's You didn't do anything. You didn't lift a finger. Uh, all that value was created by everyone around you. It's collective value generation. So it only makes sense to apply like a land value tax to paying a basic income because it recognizes that the money actually belongs to everybody because they created the value and it should go back to people. Uh, so that's one one um, mechanism that I really like for this. Another one is, is again, looking at um, you know taxing things in a way that we want to tax things we don't, don't want. So carbon taxes, I think, makes sense for a basic income as well. Because then what you're doing is saying we don't want uh, to pollute the air with a lot of greenhouse gases that are accelerating climate change. We want to reduce that. So you make it more expensive to pollute via a fee per ton of CO2 emissions. And when you do that, then and when it's paired with a basic income, then you create these choices. So yes, stuff costs more. And so therefore, it'll cost more to have your the carbon footprint that you currently have. So what you can do is you can use the money to maintain that carbon footprint, or you can actually pocket the money and decrease the size of your carbon footprint so that you can use that money on other things. And so if you do it that way, then you're looking at better competition between, say, green um, companies and ideas and just the whole green industry versus the fossil fuel industry. Because right now, the fossil fuel industry is, is enjoying a reduced cost due to the externalization of costs. You know, they're not paying for the full costs of fossil fuels. It's it's artificially cheap. So it just makes sense to actually make this more expensive for them to pollute, to kind of equal the playing field in a way that should exist already. You're reducing those externalizations. So it's also a free market approach as well. You're, you're providing money and it... Uh, helps green businesses to grow through people deciding that that's the way that we should go. So that's another uh, funding method that I like to, um, to use as well. And also I like the idea of like um, of a value added tax, uh, like a consumption tax. Because then what you're doing is it has a, it has a natural clawback mechanism to it. And, and you're also not taxing income, you're taxing consumption. So you're not, you know, you're not hurt from um, from from working from earning income. It's not reduced. It's you have the choice of of buying something or not buying something. It's an indirect tax. And the way that that would work. So let's say uh, it's a let's say it's a ten percent tax um, and a twelve thousand dollar basic income. If you look at it that way, then for everyone spending more than one hundred twenty thousand dollars per year, they would be a net payer because. Their taxes would go up over $120,000, and then they would be they would be receiving this $12,000 basic income to to cover the 10% part. And then everyone earning less than $120,000 would be or spending less than $120,000 per year would be a net receiver. So you'd see that's actually a very progressive tax, and therefore the basic income is 
not it's going to those who are spending more than $120,000, but they aren't net beneficiaries. Whereas at the bottom of the middle, everyone is a net beneficiary. So that's another tax I think makes sense in combination with the basic income. So it's things like that. Financial transaction taxes, I think, also make sense. Um, and also something that's really interesting to me is, uh, is sovereign money. And so it, this is this idea where it looks at the way that money exists right now and how we create it. And money is created out of debt by banks. That's really where most of the money comes from. And a lot of people yeah. don't understand that or know that. So sovereign money through, through uh, seniority reform would say that, well, why are we letting banks benefit from the creation of money? Let's prohibit banks from creating money and instead create it ourselves. The best way to create money and the most fair way to create money is to actually create that money in the hands of everyone universally, individually, and equally. So like in the U.S., um, based on the existing amount of money creation, you could create new money at the same rate as so therefore you wouldn't create like heavy inflation any more than you have now. You would have the same inflation. You wouldn't, uh, you would create say $200 uh, per month in everyone's accounts um, universally. And so that's not tax money. It's just created money. It's just not letting banks do it and actually creating it in a way that makes more sense. And so if you do that, then, of course, you only need a fraction of what you have to raise to cover because you're already covering some of it through actual money creation. So, um, you know, all those ideas make sense to me. And there's a lot of other options and stuff, um, you know, country to country. And one thing, like, what would the, um, what would stop, say, companies increasing their prices of food, uh, clothing, you know, just normal materials, because obviously they know that there's this universal basic income now. So, for instance, obviously we have a living yeah. wage that we're currently on per mm. hour that we get paid, and obviously, the you know, it's based on the pricing of everything here. Obviously, if this universal basic income come in and people are working, or stopping corporations going, oh, we're just going to shoot our prices up because we know people can't afford it. Yeah, so that's another common uh, response to to hearing about a basic income, and so yeah, that's an interesting conversation too. And there's a there's actually a lot of variables to the inflation equation, so we can get into that a bit. Uh, so we already covered that that the idea of basic income isn't about say monetary expansion; it's uh, actually like a fiscal measure through tax and transfer. Uh, and then even when you do the the sovereign money idea, you're still not expanding the money supply greater than it is now. So that's typically like a lot of where a fear from inflation comes from through rising costs. It's just that you'd have you'd have more people at the bottom and middle having more money and you'd have people at the top having less money. And so it's the same amount of money. Now another element of this is that you still have competition. So let's say you own a business and you know that everyone has a basic income now so you're going to raise all the prices in your business by say 10% or something. So say, hey, they've got more money, I'm going to take more of that. Well, then you have like an Amazon, and Amazon's like, I understand that people want to pay less, so not only am I not going to raise prices, but I'm going to lower them because I want to take that business. 
So suddenly, all those people who are greedy and who thought they could do that, they go out of business and they're taken over. They're destroyed by the Amazons of the world who actually understand that people want to pay less, not more. And in fact, there's an example of this actually in Alaska every year. So every year, it's distributed around the same time. Everyone gets their dividend check at around the same time. So businesses know that Alaskans have more money at that time. What do they do? There's actually sales everywhere because everyone is competing against each other in order to try to get that money to be spent at their business versus a competing business. So it's another one of those things where it, it sounds like that might be something you would want to do, but in reality, it's a terrible idea to actually raise your prices like that. So uh, another element of this is that when it comes to rising prices and increased demand, supply wants to meet that demand. You know, if you're a business, you don't want to run out of product. You want to supply as much of that product as you can that people are buying. So when it comes to raising prices, it, the, the question is, is the supply variable? How, how, can you increase supply and to what degree? If you, can't, if you can't increase the supply to meet demand, you're going to have to raise prices. If you can increase supply, you're going to want to keep prices the same or even lower them. And if you can dramatically increase supply, then prices actually go down. So an example of this, and we've seen this as well in UBI experiments. Um, so as a, as a story to portray this, imagine um, imagine a village where eggs are really expensive. They cost like a dollar per egg. It's like, because there's just hardly any eggs. Everyone starts getting a basic income. So you would think that now you could charge more for eggs. But what people do is they buy chickens because they're like, oh, I want cheap eggs. So they buy a chicken. Now all of a sudden you have all these chickens in this village and they're making a lot of eggs. So now all of a sudden there's a ton of eggs in this village. The prices of eggs go way down because there's such a huge supply of it. So that's another, it's a, it's a good illustration of how increased demand can actually, read, actually lead to such an increase in supply that prices go down instead of up. What you're looking at for increased prices that's a realistic outcome of basic income is kind of your, your luxury items. You know, it's like... Let's say you have, um, let's say you're someone on Etsy and you're selling uh, handmade purses that are you make yourself. They're entirely unique. You can't really make more than what you're already making. Mm. You, you want to, but you're limited. You can only make, say, uh, um, you know, one a week in order to, to, to meet the demand. So in that case, you could charge more because you'd have a lot more customers wanting that one purse. And you could say, well, because there's such demand for this and I can't make any more, then I'm going to raise the price. And so that's an example of where you can see raised prices. But for a lot of the goods and services that we see around us right now, you wouldn't see price increases and you could even see price decreases. Yeah, I mean, obviously, just looking at it from the way, like hearing it from your perspective changes the thought process straight away. I think a lot of people come in with that negative frame of mind about a basic income like oh well people who don't want to work they're they're getting free money like and then like my question there oh well we've got more money so corporations are just going to want to take more money from us like and then when you word it like that and think well if they did increase their prices and company would decrease their prices and they'd end up failing as a business they can't take that risk, yeah. so they actually have to decrease the prices. It, it works. Um, what are your views on uh, cryptocurrencies? Because obviously, Bitcoin 
uh, shot up loads and now it's kind of dropped mm-hmm. I don't know what it's at now I got inv- I was invested in it for a while um, and my money's still in there at the moment I've just let it go back down because I, I didn't put much in but um, what's your view on sort of and take on the cryptocurrency world as it is at the moment do you think it's dead and buried or I don't know <laughs> <laughs> no no actually I, I firmly believe that that blockchain technology represents a kind of um, a level of change as far as the internet goes. So I think what we're looking at right now is potentially like a um, an internet bubble burst part two, where the result of this is there's a lot of exuberance and a lot of just excitement around this new technology and people starting up things without a real business model uh, for profitability and success. And, uh, you know, you know, this big bubble forms and it uh, it bursts and then the, the result of this is that going forward the technology is still there and it still works it's just it's more important to figure out like businesses and ideas that do actually have profitability and they actually work for their own reasons so you know imagine looking back um, in the day with the with the dot-com bubble burst and looking at a company like Amazon which I think is kind of like uh, potentially like Bitcoin as far far as this um you know like oh well that's not going to work um because the internet just didn't work and you know it's it's just not going to happen but investors in amazon back then of course have been right to have done so looking back that you've seen this huge growth it's a very, very successful model um so when it comes to bitcoin uh, I, I i think that it's still going to to go back up and you know i think other other coins it could fall in popular Clarity to another um, coin that overtakes it. Uh, I think we'll see other blockchain technologies and other coins um, be quite successful going towards the you know in the future. And also, it's its own form of automation too. That's uh, a lot of potential there because you can algorithmically replace a lot of these middlemen that don't need to exist. Uh, you can use blockchain technology to make things was much more efficient and by efficient we mean fewer people necessary in which case that increases this uh, unemployment aspect and I think that's actually a, a great thing it, we do, if a middleman should not exist then yeah automate them out of the process get rid of them use to te- use uh, blockchain technology to decentralize this and um, you know just enable people to to do things directly and, and without these middlemen. And uh, also, I really just like the ability through decentralization to, um, say, create these currencies in, in, a, in a way that's, that makes more sense. Uh, again, through I think the best way to create currency is through everybody's, you know, individually and universally. So you've got coins like MANA, which is like a UBI currency, where everyone receives their share of this newly created currency, you know, on a on a weekly basis, so that's like the currency is being created at the bottom, and because everyone has access to it, then they can use that, and I think that makes a lot of sense. And also, I think makes a lot of sense as companies to apply like these, these kind of dividend models. So imagine how different things would be if if Facebook, uh, instead of having a model where all the revenue accrues to stockholders actually recognize that most of the value was being created by its users you know it, everyone is essentially doing work on Facebook it's just it's been 
that kind of um, atomized. It's mm. it's you don't think of something as work when you spend say one second writing a status update, you know, or liking something or or putting a smiley face or sharing something, but it's work. It's it's obviously it's it's just there's it's really really small, but it's it's shared among you know two billion people around the world for Facebook. And so there's a lot of value being generated, but the users themselves, they're just being told that your reward is a free service. <laughs> can you can you imagine, uh, does that make any sense? Can you imagine uh, the, the stockholders of Facebook being told, hey, thank you for investing in us. Your reward is that you get to use Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> like no, that's 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 not how it works. It, it only makes sense to actually provide a dividend to those creating the value. And so, with blockchain technology, it's more it's you're more um, capable of say creating these kind of dividends where you reward people. Like on Steemit, I think is a good example. It's a platform where I'm people are actually yeah, the, you earn coins essentially for voting stuff up um, and. And for creating content, uh, and those coins aren't necessarily worth anything, except they are in the marketplace. And so they are actually earning a share of this. Essentially, all the users of Steemit are like the stockholders of Steemit, especially those who are, are you know keeping actual Steam power, and it's like an investment. So it's really interesting to look at the way that these can all combine, because you can imagine the future where there's a lot of platforms out. there they're based on, based on blockchain technology where people are earning uh, some kind of cryptocurrency dividend or something through their use of, of their, of, uh, say, a Facebook clone and a, and a Twitter clone and a, and a Reddit clone. And uh, let's say um, uh, their use of like their self-driving cars or whatever, you're getting your, your data dividend. Um, so you can imagine like a lot of sources combining together to increase everybody's income above, you know, what they would be with or without a basic income. So, how would the basic income work with a blockchain, like in the sense of paying everyone out or whatever? Say the banks were, you know, it was all decentralized. The banks are fucked. They're done for. No one's using proper money anymore. Everyone's converted over to the blockchain. <laughs> It's a perfect world. How would the universal income sort of work through that? Would it be one coin that is converted into other coins, or would it be paid out? Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a it's a good question, and um, you know, there's certainly there's it can go it can go either way. It can go both ways. You can you can imagine like a UBI platform built on say the Ethereum blockchain. So let's say Ethereum itself doesn't create new currency in the hands of people, but then someone creates a platform built on Ethereum that does do that. And it's really popular with all Ethereum users. So essentially all Ethereum users get this income through another platform, you know, through a coin built on that. Um, so that, you know, that's, that's one way of going about it. Or you could have, I, I actually think that that um, the ability to actually create these dividend streams for people is actually going to be seen as a competitive advantage at some point as we go forward. And because why would you use a platform that doesn't pay you versus a platform that does pay you as long as the user base is equivalent? Um, you know, why would you use a coin 
that you aren't given versus a coin that you are given. All things, all all else being equal. Um, so it, there's there's already multiple coins out there that are being provided to everyone individually. Let's say um, you know, Swift Demand is another one. It's not on the blockchain yet. It's in ICO at the moment, but people are already receiving the Swifts on a regular, on a daily basis, actually. And it's not on the blockchain right now, but it will be. And then there's other coins. Um, you know, Solidar and Dinitor and Circles. Um, there's a lot of ideas out there as far as applying UBI to cryptocurrency. And I think those will will be successful. And I think that when it comes to um, other platforms, comparing the two, like say, a Steemit versus uh, imagine like another like Steemit but doesn't actually pay its users, why would you use the other one unless... Mm -hmm like the user base was a lot bigger uh, I think you've got a competitive advantage by actually making sure that people the user base is, is valued and seen as having value it's kind of like um, creating a Facebook 2.0 and then paying people yeah. saying come over to Facebook 2.0 we'll pay you for every post you put up and every time someone likes your status we're going to pay you for that as well and that's and then they have like a billion two billion people using it and before you know it you're rolling around in cash it's, it's a lovely day yeah, yeah I, I think that's the I, I think that's the only realistic way of actually getting around the first mover advantage from these ginormous platforms that have huge user bases you know the the one big difference is that that they don't reward their users so if you can reward your users and provide a similar experience and grow the network to a point where the size of the network itself is competitive against these existing platforms, you could succeed in winning people over to your new platform. Whereas right now, it's extremely difficult to do that otherwise, because why would you go from Facebook to a competitor Facebook where it's the same thing? It's just maybe you don't want to be in Facebook anymore because you're angry about how they mishandle your data. But yeah. <laughs> the way to win them over is to not only handle it right, but actually to reward them. And my sort of last question really is, how can a UBI help better match people to jobs? How can it sort yeah. of... I think that's a really a real powerful component. And again, there's evidence behind it. So like all of this, the, one of the reasons, one of the main reasons why I got so big into basic income is because I really, I seek out evidence I, I i care about what's real and what isn't um you know i don't just like things because it sounds right i have to look into it and the evidence is just really solid for a basic income so as another example of this uh one of the results of the negative income tax experiments in the the 70s was um you know people will look at that if you just look at the let's say a Conclusion and say, oh well, work decreased, say um, you know, five percent or eight percent for primary earners, and so oh my gosh, that's crazy that people worked eight percent less. But you have to look at this. You have to look at the details, and so the details show that people didn't actually reduce their amount of hours. What they did is they actually spent more time. Primary earners spent more time between jobs 
looking for the next job. So the result of that is that if you look at a year, their hours went down because there was a greater amount of time between jobs. But that's a better fit. You know, you, you don't want a system where people are accepting the first job that comes their way because they have no other choice but to accept it. That's how you create bad fits. That, that's how you have unproductive employees. You know, if you're, if you're not doing a job that you care about, you're unproductive, you're disengaged. What you want is for people to find the job that's right for them. That means earning a sufficient amount of money. That means having the hours that you prefer and the benefits in the environment that you prefer. You, know, you, you want people to have, to be choosing their jobs. And so you actually did see that as a result. Um, you know, one, of the, one of the biggest problems I feel in the, in, this is a global problem too, is that globally, only 15% of workers are engaged by the work that they do. Everyone else is either actively disengaged or not engaged. That's not good for productivity. No. Uh, in the U.S., it's slightly better than that. It's a third of people are engaged by what they do. So two-thirds are not engaged or actively disengaged, which means you know, you're, you're, sitting, you're taking up a chair, and there's, even, so there's, there's people outside of the labor market and people wanting a job, and they can't find one because someone is sitting in the chair who does not give a shit about the job that hmm. they're doing. Because they're just doing it because they need the income. They, they hate their job. They hate their bosses. They hate their work. They don't want to be there. They want to be doing something else. They don't want to just be sitting at home doing nothing. They like want to start up their own business. They, they want to find um, the, the work that, that, that is their passion. You know, That's what drives people. So what we want to do is create a situation, to create an environment, to create a system that enables people to, to manage match to the jobs, to choose the jobs that do engage them. So I think an, I think an unconditional basic income would dramatically increase that engagement rate because people would be choosing jobs instead of being coerced into them. Uh, and there's also evidence for this too. Uh, uh, there's an experiment that was done looking at engagement of, in tasks. And what they did is uh, they, they put people in a room and they said, okay, here's well, here's this task and here's this task. Uh, choose one or the other and, and we'll be back later. So they come back and those people on average spent five minutes doing those tasks. So in another condition, they had the exact same tasks and they said, okay, you can have this task, you can have this task, or there's a third option. You can just sit here and do nothing. <laughs> and then we'll be back later and, and, and check things out. So in that condition, where they had this third option to do nothing, the people worked on average seven minutes per task. So they were more engaged in the tasks that they could say no to doing. Why? Well, that's an interesting psychological element, because you're thinking that, that if you have the ability to not do something, then obviously it's voluntary, and so you're choosing to do it, and you're choosing to do it because you want to do it. You're more, more engaged. If you have no choice, then you don't care about it. <laughs> so you're not as engaged. So it's interesting. That's just another element of evidence that's built into this, saying that we can increase engagement, we can increase productivity by actually making sure that people have the option to say no. Yeah, I mean, I think you'd see also an increase in the quality of work that people 
yeah. do from people that are um, passionate about it. So, for example, I work in the fitness industry. Obviously, say there's someone in the fitness industry that doesn't want to do that job and there's someone who can't get that job because that person, like you said, sitting in the seat. A lot of clients that they're seeing, people that they're speaking to within that gym-based environment aren't getting the results that they require, which that could be, I don't know, they, they want to lose two stone and mm-hmm. the person there is just like, eh, I don't really care. Like, yeah, sure, write some up some shitty program, you know. And then they, they never lose the weight. They, you know, they don't have a personal trainer that pushes them. And just because that person doesn't want to be in that job and, you know, we could go on yeah. and on about the effects that that could potentially have. Whereas if you gave that job to someone who wanted to do that, obviously that person would lose the weight and then the implications of them not losing the weight or whatever would, would never unfold. So it's definitely an interesting, uh, like the better way to look at it really is if you obviously had that, because I agree with you, we don't really have at this current moment that free will to go and do what we want to do um, yeah yeah as well as even yeah, so, starting uh, your own business you know like yeah, people no, that's, don't that's have exactly, a, a startup yeah yeah that's what i was going to go next is is self-employment is such a good example where I, I think there's a lot of people out there in jobs that don't want to be there that actually want to create their own jobs that want to start a business and again this is through the evidence um there's a huge entrepreneurship effect uh, everywhere unconditional cash transfers and basic incomes have been tried. So in, in Namibia, self-employment jumped up 301%. And in India, uh, trial villages or where it was tried were three times more likely to start a business than control villages. You know, This is seen over and over again where you see that people choose to actually actually start their own business and to self-employ instead of selling their labor to others, doing something that they don't want to do and uh, again like when it comes to like your 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 example for fitness like if you if you own your own business and you you, your own person you want to you know to provide the best uh you know service that you can you want people to be you know bragging about you and going oh you want a good trainer this person will just rock your world they are like really good and so you you're doing something because it's you own it. You, you're you your own person. It's important to you to be the best, and you care a lot about that. If you're working for someone else, it, a lot of times you don't care. It's their mission. They're the ones profiting from it. Um, it doesn't benefit you. It's not you as an individual. So that's a it's a big it's a different dynamic. And also just look at um, like the arts itself too. Um, you know if you're like even like on YouTube is a good example you've got people creating videos for clicks hoping that you get that that ad revenue and so they're maybe they they themselves have an idea that they want want to do but they don't think that that will have as many clicks uh they think it'll be better they think it'll be more informative or more truthful or you know more interesting or maybe it'll be longer instead of shorter whatever but as long as you need an income in order to survive and you need that advertising revenue, you're going to be focused more on what sells. You know, what can I get people to click this with? So again, that goes to quality as well, aside from engagement. It's just just that, you know, as long as people are driven with this basic need for for survival, then, yeah, there's a big quality issue there. 
you know, just imagine a world where people are creating the content that really they feel most passionate about because um, they don't need the income. They actually are fine creating stuff for free. In fact, they even enjoy it more. Like I even have experienced that myself by having a basic income. I prefer more people to be able to say, read something that I've written. So why would I put it behind a paywall? Uh, yeah, I could earn more money for doing that, but then it's possible I wouldn't even own the rights for it. Now, I've done that before where I sold an article, and it's weird that to this day I have to ask them for, for permission to republish it hmm. and somewhere. So I wrote it. Why, is, why isn't it mine? Well, because I got money for it, and then I signed a contract. Whereas if I publish something for free out in the Creative Commons, then I, I welcome people and say, hey, publish this anywhere you want to. Just apply the same license to it with the share alike and say, you know, just say Scott Santons wrote this. Here it is. Then, you know, publish it everywhere you want to. The more people who read what I've written, the happier I am because that's why I wrote it. I, I wrote it so that people could read it, that it could reach as many minds as possible. That's what makes me happy. So it, it's, it's, it's even interesting, too, to think about the effects, the potential effects that UBI could have on, say, intellectual property itself, too. Is that if you no longer need to to hold on to intellectual property, to um, would it be as important to have, say, you know, lifetime plus seventy years of intellectual property protection for the via copyright? I don't think that makes any sense at all. I think that copyright made a lot more sense when we first started it. When say you got basically a fifteen-year head start. You know, you've got a monopoly on something for 15 years, and then it went into the public domain. I think that I think that we're all worse off by excluding things from the public domain for, for such a long period of time. Um, you know, even just look at Disney himself, which is its own interesting story. That that Walt Disney started, and he, he all these stories were from, from the public domain, <laughs> and then so, but now his stories are not in the public domain. Those are all Disney stories. And uh, no one can touch them. No one can do anything about them. And they, they've even uh, lobbied to maintain and extend copyrights over and over again. And I think that, that I think that's bad for all of us. Uh, we, the public domain is a rich thing. You know, the, the more that people are able to reach into a, a common pool of ideas and play with those ideas and re recombine them, then everybody is better off. If you if you pull out an idea and monopolize it for a century, I think that's worse for all, all of humanity. And um, so and another idea I think would be really interesting is to apply like the carbon tax model to intellectual property. So what you would do is you would say, you can monopolize something all you want to. Uh, you 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 get your copyright, you get your patent or whatever. and But each year, it gets more and more expensive to keep it out of the public domain. And let's say, you know, just for simplicity's sake, you double it every year. So the first year is like a dollar, and then $2, and $4, and $8, and $16. So at first, it's very affordable to maintain a monopoly on your patent or copyright. But over time, it gets more and more expensive. So, you know, then it becomes $1,000 to keep it out of the public domain for a year, then 2000 then 4000 then 8000 16000 You know, eventually you're looking at a million, two million, four million, eight million. And so eventually you reach a point where it's, it's 
it's just too expensive mm-hmm. to keep it out of the public domain. So it falls into the public domain. So uh, the whole time you've been actually encouraging people to let things go back to the public domain. And those who are paying for it to be excluded are actually paying everybody through the basic income because it's funding it. I think that's a, I think that would be a really interesting idea to, um, to fund this because it's just another one of those, you know, it's pros on both sides. You could earn the money from Disney tomorrow. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. If they want to keep owning Mickey Mouse, make them pay for it. <laughs> we'll be getting like 180 billion. It's just like, yep, yeah, there we go. Sorted. <laughs> no, right, right. I mean, like with my podcast, that uh, you know, that obviously it's hard. Uh, so many people don't want to share my stuff or whatever, but I never put ads on my videos. I hope I haven't. If I have, I haven't done it deliberately. Um, and it's kind of just free out there for, for everyone wants to tune in. And obviously I, I made my Patreon account because I want people to just kind of support what I'm doing because right. obviously I'd like to pay people to come on so I can have interesting guests that my followers want to see on, etc. But I think some people just want to hold on to their money. <laughs> it's hard, you know? Yeah. But, yeah, so, it, yeah, so there's a couple things from that too that's it's really interesting is you're looking at like a scarcity mentality so you're right now people that need to hold on to the money because they don't know what the future is going to to bring you know so it's more like this kind of hoarding mentality when you reduce that scarcity and you create like this concept of abundance and you're it's plenty and so like when i have a basic income um, having that I, I feel that that scarcity is, is not there and so i'm actually much much more willing to donate to people than I was before because before basic income I didn't know you know a year down the road or whatever if I was going to need something but now I know that every month I'm going to be okay so if I want to donate to somebody on Patreon yeah I'm actually much more likely to do that now than I used to be and it also looking at this I think that really shows the kind of the future of work too is that we shouldn't just think about you know these typical careers um i think that was kind of like a a temporary juncture in time where people started working um 40 hours full time for like decades at a time in the same place i think that's like a historical artifact before it wasn't like that it was actually more task labor before the industrialization happened and i think we're kind of going to go back to that where platforms like patreon enable people to to do things like this where you can actually run a podcast and that's valuable work and you're doing something that you enjoy and other people enjoy and you're able to fund it through people who are providing you this extra base so imagine a future where you not only have a basic income but then you have your patreon income too and other people have their patreon incomes and you know you're you're sharing it with each other and you're you're helping people do more than would otherwise be able to do. You're not just sitting at home doing nothing. You know, you're you're able to do more, and you're also able to earn more through what you're doing. Yeah, and give to other people. Because if I had like spare cash, right. I'd be pledging money to to other people. Whereas if someone's wants five dollars, I'm like, oh, can I afford that? Like, I might be broke <laughs> in a yeah, month. Yeah, exactly. And uh, it, it, I, I get what you mean. That's it's that scarcity that kind of kicks in. Can I really afford yeah. to 
to spend two dollars, five dollars on something, yeah, we'll go to McDonald's and spend a tenner, you know. (laughs) You know, also, this reminds me, there's a really interesting um, uh, uh, result that I came across, too. And this so this goes back to the engagement and it ties to what we're talking about here is that it was they found that those who are less engaged in their work are actually less giving. They're less likely to donate to causes than those who are engaged by their work. So that then you're you're not looking at like this amount of money that they have. It's basically like how happy they are as like the kind of their daily living. If you are, are engaged by your work, then you're living an existence that's that's less upset and angry, and you're more likely to give to other people. And so it, the, again, those kind of combine together, where it just makes sense that you know in the future when you have a base income when you've reduced scarcity when people have enough to start with then you're just you're more giving you're you're connecting to other people uh there's more empathy there's more trust in society no it makes sense from like a a psychological aspect you're happy to be going to work and you plan on doing that work for a long time you've got the spare it's kind of seen as spare money because you're enjoying what you're doing it's like yeah you know i'll be happy to go to work tomorrow whereas if you don't enjoy your job, you're like, oh, maybe I'll just pull a sick day and not go and I won't get paid, <laughs> right. but, yeah. if, you know, whatever. So, no, I mean, um, it's been, we've been talking for an hour and ten minutes and it's been an absolute um, pleasure. Obviously, I only booked you in for for an hour, but you've answered all my questions and I really appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, no, it's been fun. My mind. Really opened my mind yeah, to, great. To, to the aspects. But um, I'll talk to you off camera anyways. If you want to, you can promote yourself now. This is your couple of minutes promote your websites and stuff but i'll put them in the link <laughs> but i'll put them in the link below anyways but yeah far sure, sure, away okay. with anything you want to say yeah 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 so you know i have got a blog and i actually have a a frequently asked questions site that really gets into a lot of aspects of basic income that have, we've both discussed here and have gone undiscussed um so that's scottsands.com and uh my patreon account is patreon.com slash scottsands and i also just recommend going to the subreddit so that's reddit.com slash r slash basic income if you want to learn more there's new stuff posted there every day to to really get into this and uh, also basicincome.org which is a great resource to learn Uh, it's a news site that you can learn about what's going on all over the world uh, about you know basic income developments perfect well we'll talk off camera anyways uh thank you for coming on really appreciate it all Um, right thank you yeah, and I'll I'll roll the end credits. Cool.